0: So we are on Lesson 5 of the Winter Quarter. The title of the lesson is Nehemiah Begins to Build, and it's covering the Scriptures, Nehemiah chapters 1 through 3. So Lord, we thank you for this record of the exile's return to Jerusalem. And uh It can be a parallel for us, you know, they came back according to your will, things were not smooth, they needed to lean on you the whole time to accomplish what you wanted them to, and so do we. So we pray that you would help us to do that, and help us to have understanding of uh, this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the book of Ezra was a fulfillment of a prophecy. And that prophecy was Isaiah forty four twenty eight to forty five one concerning Cyrus. That the prophet Isaiah, God through the prophet Isaiah, called out about a hundred and fifty years before he was born, the name of the Persian king that would release the Jews from exile. And we saw how that worked out. Now Nehemiah is also a fulfillment of prophecy. Nehemiah is the fulfillment of the first seven weeks of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And that decree, well, let me read that that prophecy first. So remember, it was nearing the end of the time Daniel was looking at the Bible. He saw the book of Jeremiah that Jeremiah prophesied 70 weeks in captivity. And it was in 539 B.C., that he prayed a prayer of repentance and um, very long prayer of repentance with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And the Lord answered him by sending Gabriel, who gave him the 70 weeks prophecy. And this is it, starting in Daniel 9, verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's what is going to be fulfilled in our lesson, until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So that's what we're going to learn about in Nehemiah. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So what Nehemiah does is shows us the fulfillment of the first seven weeks. It will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built with plasma moat even in times of distress. Yeah, I believe it goes over the first seven weeks. So, and the decree is in Nehemiah 2 and verses 4 and 5, which we'll get to today. The author is Nehemiah himself. Much of it is written in the first person. And it was probably written about 430 B.C., which is close after the these events transpired. So anyway, section A is Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah prays for Jerusalem. Okay, so that is chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter one verse one the words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year while I was in Susa the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Okay, so verse 1, it says it was in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah was in Susa, the capital. So the 20th year of Artaxerxes was 13 years earlier than the seventh year of Artaxerxes. And the seventh year of Artaxerxes was when Ezra had led the second wave back from Babylon. So this is now 13 years after that. And the, you know, the events of the second part of Ezra played out with the uh, all the unfaithful marriages discovered, and hundred and some divorces. So, Ezra had found resurgent paganism by intermarrying with foreign women, and he corrected that through divorce. So, that's what we covered last time. So, then verses 2 and 3 are the report from uh, Nehemiah's brother who came from Jerusalem. And he asked about the state of Jerusalem, and he got a bad report. He said, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity in great distress and reproach, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So this is, remember that uh, back in Ezra, they had built the temple. The temple was completed in 515 B.C. under Darius. And they had started to rebuild the wall until the uh, Samaritan leaders wrote to this same king, Artaxerxes, and, you know, complained about them and said they'd be rebellious and all that sort of thing. And they made them stop. So that was under this same king. So, Ezra 4 and verse 8, Rehim the commander and Shinshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes. That was the letter. And remember, this letter was out of order because it was Cyrus who had decreed that they go build the temple. And it was under Darius, the third king, in the line from Cyrus, one I can't remember. Darius. And Artaxerxes is the fifth king, so they put this letter in out of order in the chronology in Ezra, and they sent Artaxerxes a letter, and this is what Artaxerxes did. This is him speaking, so now, issue a decree to make these men stop work, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Artaxerxes said that, so he left the door open to change his mind there, but he is the one who had them stop building the wall. And then the leaders of Samaria got the letter. This is in Ezra 4.23. Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read, before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem, to the Jews, and stopped them by force of arms. So they went with the army, and it is, you know, so this destruction that Nehemiah is sad about, it was not the Babylonian destruction. It was this destruction. They came, they stopped it by force of arms, and they tore down the wall. They tore down what they had started to build. So that's the situation. And his, Nehemiah's response was verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So I just wanted to point out one thing here. Um, There are two types of instructions or examples in the Bible. One is proscriptive. What would proscriptive be? Proscriptive would be the commands that the Lord has given you. Versus descriptive, these are examples of what actually happened in history. And this is one of these right here. And I brought this up because of fasting. Is fasting commanded by the Lord? For the Jews, it was for one day a year, the Day of Atonement. For the church, it is not commanded at all. Now, the Jews fasted a lot more than one day a year. Didn't they? Here's one example. Ezra fasted. Ezra had a complete fast without water. And why were they fasting? The Lord did not command them to fast. Why did they why were they fasting? They're sad. Yeah, they're sad. They fast because they're sad. Ezra was sad. Nehemiah is sad. Now listen to this is from David the time of David this is second Samuel 12 this is right after David had been busted for his adultery with Bathsheba he got her pregnant. Nathan had come and uh, you know and David confessed and so the Lord would forgave him but there was a price and Nathan told him that the child that Bathsheba conceived would die. That was part of his the outworking of his sin. Well this made David sad. And so what did David do? So this is 2 Samuel verse 12, starting in verse chapter 12, starting in verse 15. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. So David is fasting. He's praying. He's refusing to eat. And he refused to eat for a week because the the baby was sick for a week. And then the baby died. And then what did David do? Verse 19, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servant, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And he came to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. So he had received the Lord's answer. There's no reason to fast anymore. And, you know, I mean... Last week, Alex said, well, does that mean you're begging God? I think it is. (laughs) When you're fasting, you're begging God for something you want. Does God command it? No. So that makes me think, okay, now, do we fast now? I guess if we're very sad and we're hoping that God can make a change to things in our surroundings, then the time of fasting would be indicated. Does that mean that he will answer that in the positive? No, it does not, just like David here. It does not mean that. Um, so th- that's the place of fasting, in in my opinion, in the church age, is if you're very sad, you're very distressed, and you're praying, and you just really want the Lord to know you're serious about it. Um, but it's not a guarantee that he's gonna say yes, it might not be his will. So, um, but we are not commanded to fast in the church age at all, which I have learned through time. You know, like I said, I used to fast once a week because I thought the Lord would hear my prayers better. I do not think that's true because he does not tell us to do it. (laughs) If he tells you to do something, then there's a benefit to doing it. If he does not tell you, you know, I don't think there is. So, and also, you know, we read that Daniel chapter 9, to start off this lesson, and Daniel received his 70-week prophecy, he also was fasting when he was doing that prayer. He He was fasting because he was fasting in confession. And he was sad about his forefathers who had led them into captivity. So then, five through nine is Nehemiah's prayer of repentance. So, Nehemiah, just like Ezra had done, just like Daniel had done, was praying a prayer of repentance. He included himself in the prayer of repentance, even though he had nothing to do with why all these things had happened. But he was praying for Israel. And he did that by, he was remembering the Mosaic Covenant. And in the Mosaic Covenant itself was written, God promised them that if they repented, verse 9, if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them. Though those of you who have been scattered, were in the most repart of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them back to Jerusalem. So that was God's promise that if they repented, they would be brought back to the place where He chose, caused His name to dwell. And so Nehemiah was praying based on that promise, and then. Verse 11 This is the first time you learn that Nehemiah was a very high official in Persia. He was a very high government official. He was the cupbearer to the king. So in the quarterly, it tells about the cupbearer to the king. It's called Holding More Than a Cup. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the great Persian king Artaxerxes. Cupbearer was a humble title for an important post. In the Expositor's Bible Commentary, Edwin Yamauchi suggests that a royal cupbearer would 1. be trained in court etiquette, 2. be physically impressive, 3. control the imperial wine cellar, 4. be a companion and sounding board for the emperor, 5. he would grant or deny access to the emperor. It's like our president's chief of staff. And six, he would either have the emperor's absolute confidence or he'd lose his head. Nehemiah was that person in Persia. Okay, so that's that section. Anybody have comments about that? Nehemiah got some news, made him sad, made him fast, made him pray. He prayed a prayer of repentance based on the promise of the Mosaic Covenant, that the Lord would regather the people if the nation repented. Okay, so section B is Nehemiah prepares for Jerusalem. And that is chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Okay, thank you, ma'am. Chapter 2, verse 1. Nehemiah is fasting and praying. He started in chapter one. And here it tells you the month Nisan. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of these time stamps. It tells you when things are and things like that. And so you can locate it in history. And uh, remember, he started, he heard the news in the month Chislev month Chislev in the 20th year. Now it is in the month Nisan. That is about four to five months, I think maybe five months later, that Nehemiah has been fasting and praying. So we know he has not been fasting for five months. So he probably intermittently fasting. And praying and thinking and reading the Scriptures and talking to the Lord about this issue. He's been doing it for months. Okay? And um, this is what the Puritans used to call praying through. Have you heard that expression, praying through? It It is very helpful when you pray for something specific that you write it down, because we forget things. And when you have your devotions in the morning and you pray, you go over these things and you pray for them. Because the Lord, when you say a prayer, the Lord will respond in three ways, right? He will either say yes, he will say no, or he will say wait. And you don't know for a while if he's saying wait or no, or if he's going to say yes. Some of the prayers that you pray the Lord may delay the response for quite a while. So the concept of praying through is to continue to pray until the Lord changes, takes away the maybe and makes it either yes or no. That is what David did. That is what David did about the life of his son that he had conceived out of wedlock with Bathsheba. He was praying that the Lord would allow him to live even though the prophet told him he would die. He was trying to change the Lord's mind about what he told him through the prophet. Well, the Lord did not change his mind. But, you know, I think having a journal with you when you're praying and writing down the date, the time you come up with it. For example, I have an example of this. Last year, the legislature of Washington passed a law. Governor Inslee signed it about um a capital gains tax on washington state and it's actually an income tax and i i think it's unconstitutional and i've been praying that that would be struck down by the courts so so far what has happened and i've continued to pray about that it's been probably at least a year now it went to a court in Douglas County, and they struck it down. And then it's been appealed to the Washington State Supreme Court. And um, so we'll see. So he continue to pray that the Lord would strike that down. I believe it's unconstitutional. but So that's an example of praying through. You pray through. Once the Washington State Supreme Court decides, I will know if the Lord answered my prayer, yes or no. And, uh, you know, yeah, and so, and there's a lot of things like that, you know. Um, I have I have years of these with um, more yeses than nos when I pray. But no, yeah, you know, when we talk about fasting. There's no command to fast. Is there a command to pray for us? There's a lot there's a lot of commands to pray the lord wants you to pray a lot because you have access to him through jesus you can help other people who can't help themselves the unbelieving because you have access to jesus and they do not and so you can help them by prayer and uh, the most the best help is to pray for their salvation so that they can also have access so That's the concept of praying through, and that is what Nehemiah was doing here. Artaxerxes had palaces in Susa and in Babylon. Susa was a little farther east. And it's possible that during this time, these uh, few months, that he could have been in Babylon while Nehemiah was in Susa, so he didn't have access to the king. Then look at verse 2. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, why would you be afraid by someone saying that? So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, in Esther, this is the queen preceding Artaxerxes. It says this. Esther 4, verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to them the golden scepter so that he may live. I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. The kings of Persia were fickle, it sounds like. And they were absolute monarchs, so that means they had the power of life or death over their subjects. That's why he was afraid. Because when you're in the presence of the king, you should not be sad. Because that would imply that you disagree with the king in some way. Or you're disappointed with the king in some way, which would be fatal (laughs) to you. Exactly. So, you know, that's why he was afraid. And and again, you know, this has to go with faith. So Nehemiah's faith I would say is less than Ezra's faith, because Ezra had approached the king without fear, the same king, and asked for all this stuff. Because he trusted you know and yeah, I'm I'm gonna keep going over this over and over again because the more you grow in the Lord your faith, your your fear factor will approach zero, as you grow in the Lord. So Nehemiah was still afraid of the king. Yeah, he had he had a lot of faith, but he didn't have enough faith to take the fear away completely. The sermon actually is going to be on that today. That'll be a good sermon. So we want to have so much faith that we are not afraid of anything, that we trust the Lord so much that we just don't care what happens because we know he'll take care of us. And, uh, you know, in 1 John four eight it says, this is what, what we're going to, no, 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Okay, and so when we are walking with the Lord in the light of his word, we won't have fear. So that's what we want to do. Okay. Oh, I have a note in here that this was taking place this Nehemiah fasting and praying was taken taken place 71 years after the temple was completed. And after the response to King Artaxerxes' former letter in Ezra 4:23 which stopped the rebuilding of the wall and and uh, the wall was torn down. So in verse 3, says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city of the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Notice he does not speak the name of Jerusalem. He avoids it, and he is very respectful to the king. Is that a good plan? to be very respectful. Yeah, you should be respectful to people no matter what who they are. Yeah, but especially the king. You should be respectful. Yeah. So this is Proverbs chapter 15 verses 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Another one, Proverbs 25 Verse 15 says, By forbearance a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. A soft tongue breaks the bone. Why? It is more persuasive. It is more likely to change the mind. Yes. Even of the king. Remember it was Artaxerxes' decree that stopped the building. This is the man he's coming to. So he wants to change the king's mind. So this is how you do it. You know, you should do this all the time, be respectful when you speak to someone. If you want to convince someone of something, you don't yell at them and call them an idiot. You're you are respectful of them, you're kind to them, and you gently persuade. And that is more likely to actually change their mind. So then verse four, no, verse three, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad on the city? The place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Again, he does not mention the name Jerusalem. He doesn't want to set him off. And then verse four, Then the king said to me, what would you request? So the king is a little more brusque than Nehemiah, of course, as you would expect. Yeah. So I prayed to the God of heaven. So he has been praying for months, but now he prays in the moment. Lord, help me. That's probably all he could get out. And um, so pray while you go. And we are told to do that also. Pray without ceasing. That's praying while you go. When you encounter things, pray as things, you know, you interact with things in the world. So then verses 5 through 8, Daniel, or not Daniel, um, Nehemiah had been praying for months, so the Lord had worked out a plan in his mind over these months. When he went to the king, when he had an opportunity, he was ready with specifics to tell him what he would like to do exactly. That is also a good example. When you want to do something and there's an authority figure there, and you want to ask them permission, be ready with the specifics. So verse 5, I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? See, so he valued his service, and he wanted him back. So he wants to know way he's coming back. So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. So he anticipated this question, and he had prepared an answer. He was prepared. Yeah, and then he thought of this, which I thought was smart. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And because the good hand, and the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So this is evidence that the Lord had answered Nehemiah's prayer positively in the affirmative. Yeah, and so, yeah, no. So, yeah, that you know, if you have this, these lists of prayers and you see God answering, it's very exciting. It's very exciting, and it's very motivating. And it's very faith-building, so I would recommend that. And then look at verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobi the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So just recognize that there will be no progress in God's will without Satan's attack. Satan will always attack when you are following God's will. That's just how things are. That's how it works. It does. We, we come to learn that it doesn't matter what Satan does. Yeah, it does not matter what Satan does. Do we expect it? Yes. When things go wrong? Okay, we expect that. <laughs> because we know it happens. But just like Nehemiah, it didn't stop him. It was an irritant. So that's why the armor of God is so important for us as believers. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. See the... Baya and Sanballat were being used by evil spirits. That's what is happening. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, that's the Bible, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that's your obedience to the Bible, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So be prepared to tell people about how to be saved. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil ones. See, the more you walk with God, you will get attacked. The more God shows you that he will overcome these things for you, the more your faith will build so that it's like, okay, whatever. You don't worry about it. And that is how your fear goes to zero. That is how your fear will eventually go down to zero. Because Satan will t- attack, he'll always attack, but you know it doesn't matter, and you don't care. So your faith goes to zero. No, that's not true, your faith goes real high. Your fear goes to zero. <laughs> this is Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, yeah. And take the helmet of salvation, Your helmet of salvation is your understanding that once you're in Christ, you're in Christ forever. You can't be taken out. You can't lose your salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is what is the power. And the prayer. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So that is how we... Um, equip ourselves to deal with spiritual war. Okay, so section C, oh, one more thing, verses five and six are uh, fulfillment of the initiation of Daniel's 70-week prophecy, which was given 95 years earlier. In 539 B.C., Daniel prayed. Daniel prayed. This prophecy was given to him. The king has granted the petition, the decree, to rebuild Jerusalem. And that was the start of the 70 weeks. That gives you the chills, man, doesn't it? Now, the 70 weeks prophecy is a timed prophecy. So it started at this point. The 20th year, the month of Nisan, which is about April. Um, No, actually, I wrote down the exact date. Where did I write this down? Somewhere I wrote this down. Yeah, it's March 5th, 444 B.C. March 5th, 444 B.C. was the exact date of this decree. And from that date, if you use the Jewish year, which is 360 days, not 365 days, and you count 69 weeks of years, and you multiply them out and you get that number of days, it's like 173,000 or something. And you count that number of days from this date, March 5th, four forty-four B.C., To the date that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. I don't know if it was down or up. (laughs) On a donkey, which also fulfilled Jeremiah chapter nine prophecy, it was to that day that the sixty-nine weeks were finished. On that day when he rode in, presenting himself as the Messiah. So God knows math. Down to the day. And then it says the Messiah will be cut off. Well, that happened, right? And God put a, his finger on the stopwatch and stopped that timer. Seventy-nine weeks, 69 weeks have passed to the day of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. The 70th week of Daniel will begin again with the signing of a peace treaty between the world leader and unbelieving Israel. It will start again. And that will launch the tribulation. (laughs) That will launch the tribulation, which will end with Jesus coming back. Okay? So, in between, you know, Acts 2, and before the signing of the peace treaty, is the church. So the church came in on a miracle, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit. The church will leave the earth with a miracle, the rapture, and then the tribulation will start sometime afterward. Um, because Daniel's 70-week prophecy has to do with the nation of Israel. It doesn't have to do with the church. The church is was a mystery at the time it was given. So that is good news for us, because we will not see the tribulation. I can see the preparation for it very clearly right now. But we won't see the tribulation itself. So anyway, Section C, Nehemiah Motivates Jerusalem, that's Chapter 2, 11 through 20. You want to read that one? 11 through 20, Chapter 2. So I came Jerusalem. Okay, thank you. I'm curious why the uh, Thodamite and Sambalat um, and Tobiah, what was the impetus of, of their motive for being against the rebuilding of Jerusalem? They were the surrounding peoples. Um, Geshem was an Arab, so descended from Ishmael. So yeah. they were bitter toward the Jews, as they still are today. Um, Sanballat was, uh, I believe, he yeah, he was a Samaritan official. So he was one of those who were brought in by the Assyrian king, and then they interbred with the Jews. And they had syncretistic worship between paganism and the true God. And Tobiah was a a Jew who was like a traitor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was a traitor. (laughs) Yeah. And he was an Ammonite official. Remember, Ammon was just to the east of the Jordan River from Mm -hmm. Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, they were, you know, hereditary enemies Mm -hmm. of Israel they could have always accepted the God of Israel you know like Ruth and Rahab did but they had not so verse 11 tells us that when Nehemiah got to Jerusalem he was there 3 days and rested that's exactly what Ezra had done when he got there he rested 3 days before he did anything right tired out verses 12 through 16 detail a nighttime survey of the southern city wall And if you have a quarterly, on page 44 of the quarterly, it's a very helpful map. And uh, see, this is the city of Jerusalem. And then he came out at the valley gate, which is right here. That's the valley gate. He went down south along the west side around the tip by the dung gate. It's interesting that that's at the southern end, (laughs) the dung gate. And then he went up, and then he had to get off of his donkey because there was so much trouble he couldn't, the donkey couldn't navigate it. And that was over on the, uh, yeah, that was over on the eastern side, over along here, and he walked up and then came back, and he was, he was, Looking at the area, he hadn't told anybody what he was there for yet. He hadn't told people what he was doing there. And so he was just surveying the city. And I just want you to notice something, again, that that, uh, the Bible is historical. And it has geographical facts in it. The, this is a map of Jerusalem at that time. In real history, this is not a fable. This is not made up. This is real history, and this is what we base our faith on, real history, real geography. And so... um. Yeah, so he goes through here and then goes back into the city. Then he comes back around and re-enters through the valley gate. Okay, then verses 16 and 17, he says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. So he has permission now, but he doesn't have a labor force. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. This is, he is motivating. It is a motivational speech. You know, let's do this so we will no longer have repro- reproach anymore. And then the clincher was verse 18. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. And the response of the Jews then were, then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So, you know, when Dane came, because pastors get tired. Pastors get, uh, a lot of pastors quit. It's a hard job. People are always telling you what you're doing wrong. And, you know, you don't get paid too much, and uh, it's tough. And so when he came, I made a list of uh, answered prayers and very unusual coincidences, which led him to come here and gave it to him, you know. Because, like, you know, when Jim told me to find a reap a replacement for him. That was in January of 2020, I think. That was the time that Dane decided that the Lord wanted him to come back here. You know? And uh, I found this thing at his seminary about how to find a pastor, how to put an ad for a a pastor. And I told that to the elder board, and they never heard of anything like that. I said, well, it seems like it's worth a try, isn't it? So we sent an ad through them, and we sent an ad through 12 other agencies, 12 other seminaries. No one answered us, except through that one. And we got three answers from there. One of which was this kid from (laughs) Vashon, who knew 10 different languages, you know. And, uh, And plus, you know, I was praying. I was not fasting, but I was praying. And uh, I was very distressed because I felt like it was too much weight for me. And the Lord answered my prayer while I was praying. I was on my knees. I got an email, and it was Dane. So, you know, that uh, motivates you. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I feel like it's the Lord's will that Dane came here, and, and I gave that to him because I want him to know that. Because that gives you strength when things are hard. Yeah, so, but again, when you do the Lord's will, there's resistance. That's verse 19. Sanballat the Horonite, to buy the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. They mocked and despised and said, and then they accused them falsely. Are you rebelling against the king? No, they had the king's permission. So then Ezra, no, wait a minute. Then Ezra verse 20 so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. You have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. So this is exactly what was said by Zerubbabel in the first wave when the enemies of the Jews approached them to build the temple. And this is, again, this principle of separation from the world. You want to be in the world, but not of it. And that's what they were doing there. For the quarterly, it goes, chapter three, basically, is a detailed account of who built each section of the wall in a counterclockwise direction, starting at the northeast corner of the city. So if you have this map and you read chapter three, it will tell you all the gates and it will be going in a counterclockwise direction all the way around the city. So they were building the wall all the way around the city. It's the map. Yeah, Nehemiah 3 is the map. So they were working on the whole wall at once, all the way around the city, because they had a huge labor force working on it. So, Lord, we thank you for this... Uh, this. Uh explanation of answered prophecy that your will gets done, and uh, we pray that it would build our faith in our day, and it would take our fear away. And we thank you for a new year. In Jesus' name, amen.